Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. One note I wanted to add to this podcast is since recording it, we've made an investment in Rome Research's seed round and are delighted to have them in the Village Global portfolio. Started from the podcast, now we hear. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Connor White-Sullivan, CEO and co-founder of Rome Research. Connor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Connor, by, by way of introduction, uh, you know, I'm, I've been really excited to have you on the podcast for, for a while. Why don't you sort of introduce Rome and what is the insight that, that led you to start it? What, what are you really trying to, to, to achieve with it? So Rome is a tool for building personal knowledge graphs. Um, so you could think of it like a way we describe it is it, it's like an outliner or, you know, like Google Docs, except it's built on a graph database. So you don't need to think about, oh, what file or folder does my idea go into, especially if the idea, like many ideas do, relates to many different topics. Um, it's really easy for you to, to draw connections between different ideas, to group ideas into sets of intersecting sets. Um, and, and yeah, basically it, it's a tool that is designed to work more like your brain naturally does and not sort of force you into artificial constraints that, that uh, the normal tools we have for knowledge, for organizing knowledge. I, yeah, I want to ask about sort of the bigger philosophy behind Rome and sort of the, the work that you did to, to uncover that. And, and maybe one way to do that is to, segue, is to just dig deeper there. Like, how does our brain na- naturally work and how is, it, how is it held back? Normally, when you have an idea, your, your brain is drawing synaptic connections between all the other ideas that that thing is connected to. Um, so if you are sitting on a beach reading a book about pandemics, you know, that was recommended to you by a certain friend, you're going to be able to remember the friend by that book you're going to be able to remember the book by that friend you're going to be able to you know think about oh it relates to things that are relevant for thinking about you know the covid pandemic or or something like that so normally you know our our brain can organize things hierarchically but it also organizes things associatively and since you know word documents and, and the file system have come out we've tended to try and force our ideas into you know a single page or uh, a page that gets into you know one file in a filing cabinet, um, and we've we don't have in the ways that we represent our text um, the ways the the associative structure or the, uh, the the sort of natural graph structure that that our thoughts tend to have, and so that really limits us um, both in you know remembering things or drawing new connections, but it also limits our ability to sort of do complicated reasoning of saying well you know this point implies these other four points. And if I invalidate that point, maybe I should go check up on those and see whether I still believe them. And, and you want it, it's social too, right? For about the last 12 years, I've been thinking a lot about collective intelligence and thinking about what, you know, now people are talking about uh, collaborative sense-making and, and game B type things. Um, but I originally got interested in the problem looking at things like Wikipedia and open source and the way that you could have sort of large-scale collaborative creation of, of intellectual commons. Um, like the way that many people could collaborate to create a single information artifact that that could then be used by other people, but there's problems with with Wikipedia. Um, like you know, it it sort of tries to force a single point of view, and it doesn't. Uh, it's it it grounds out with you know whether something has been published by the New York Times or by an existing academic journal. It's not a good place for original research um, because with original research, you you need to be able to have some perspective. Like you know, one person is is pushing forward a certain thought. I, I've been working on that space for um, about twelve years through you know one startup that, and then uh, after we got acquired through a, a R and D group. But we basically have thought that you need a, a different way of representing the structure of thought in order to enable sort of large-scale collaborative research or collaborative um, knowledge creation. And so Rome is starting with that, that single-player uh, data structure, almost, that allows you to collaborate with first your past self, right? Synthesize ideas from all the different books you're reading and start to build these um, maps of a domain. 
even if that domain is, you know, your goals and your projects or, or you know, reflections over you know, journaling or things that you've done over the course of your life. But uh, to start with that, that single player tool and then to enable eventually um, much more collaborative thinking and, and collaborative problem solving. And, and, and flesh out what that looks like a little bit at, at scale. You just talked about that as a wedge. You, you, you've mentioned you use Excel as, as a North Star, but in a world in which Rome you know, achieves its dreams, how, how is the world different or what does that look like? Well, so one way to think about it is just the, the way people organize book notes right now. So I, I was really inspired by a book called How to Read a Book um, by Mortimer Adler, where the idea is if you want to form your own thoughts on a, on a domain, one thing you do is you, you read you know, 20 different authors on that domain and you break those authors down into you know, what questions are they asking, what are the claims that they're making, what's the evidence they have for those claims, what's the structure of the argument that they're pre- presenting, what kind of key terms are they defining, and then you map those ideas together. So you say, you know, how does, how does this one author support or oppose one other author? You start to actually synthesize those things together. And, um, you know, before I started Rome, I ran a bunch of collaborative research groups where we would read different books on the same topic. And we tried to organize them in tools like, you know, Workflowy or Evernote, like Dropbox paper. But because you couldn't have all the, you, you couldn't easily remix these notes, especially if they were originally organized by, uh, by book, right? You can't suddenly see all of the questions from all of the authors or all of the quotes from that, that relate to one particular topic that you're, you're looking at across 20 different books. So yeah, what, what it looks like is it looks like the ability to, to have many different indexes into your knowledge that are really easy for you to, you know, in Rome, they get generated somewhat automatically through this thing called bidirectional linking, where you know when you type a word out in uh, and and wrap it in in double square brackets, it automatically creates a link to that page, and it'll also pull in that paragraph uh, and anything that was indented underneath it uh, into that page into a a collection of of backlinks. So it makes it really easy for you to have many different indexes into your thoughts and, and different ways of sorting them and filtering them, and then and then pulling those notes up into synthesis documents. It is interesting. So, you know, we talked about sort of the shortages of, of Wikipedia, and you've talked about your threads. Like, Twitter, to some people, you know, serves some elements of this construct of, you know, the closest, or to me personally, it's the closest thing I use to sort of a global brain or a collective intelligence vehicle, i.e. I sort of think out loud in it. It's sort of, I use it as sort of a, a collaborative Google Doc. I get feedback on various different sort of, you know, tweets uh, and feedback in the realm of likes, but also in the realm of actual, like, you know, um, here's the right answer type of feedback. And then I try to create sort of this threaded structure and then threads of thread structure. And it seems like Rome is that, you know, 10 X or a hundred X. I think, I think there's a, there are a couple of different ways to use Twitter. And I think there is one of the things we've noticed over the last couple of years is that there's a small minority of Twitter users who are using Twitter as uh, and, and I'll I'll quote uh, this guy Visa Can V, where he says he uses Twitter as Evernote with a slot machine, machine attached to it, right? <laughs> and uh, because you never know, you know, some people will just like scream at you for something you say, or they'll they'll post some some generative insight. And Twitter isn't really designed, you know, we we've talked to a bunch of people at Twitter, and and as a company, they're focused on now, right? They're focused on. Like Twitter is a replacement for looking at your window and it's, it's very present oriented, but some folks like yourself can sort of hack Twitter and you know, they use search extensively. They search their old tweets. They're, they're copying, you know, links from their old tweets and they're, they're building these threads and they're, they're building threads of threads and, you know, they're, they're remixing old ideas into new contexts. And it's, it's a pretty amazing and powerful tool because, you know, when somebody starts following you and, and discovers you, they can go down any kind of rabbit hole based on their interest and, and find, you know, tweets that you've written two years ago and, and, you know, reply to them then, right. Reply to them now and, and, and give you some new idea. So, yeah, I think, I think the people who are sort of hacking Twitter in this way where they're, they're writing up book summaries like you do, right. Or they're, um, they're forming. And then from those book summaries, they're forming theses on a space and, you know, remixing those book summaries into, uh, or like the individual claims or the individual observations made in, in a book summary, and they're 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 pulling them into to larger threads. It's a pretty amazing and powerful space, but it it also, you know, everything you write has to be in public, so it doesn't leave as much room for you know the thoughts that are more heretical or you know that you're you're not quite ready to 
to, to put out into the open. Um, and search is also really poor, right? It's very hard to find, you know, you'll, you'll see a tweet and like it, but if you don't immediately thread it, um, it can be really hard to find those in the future. So, so yeah, so the idea for Rome is like, and Rome right now is, is I would say actually like half of my personal knowledge management system, the other half being Twitter, right? Where, you know, I, I have a, a similarly a lot of threads of threads and I can pretty easily find certain things that I'm looking for by remembering one thread or like one tweet in one of those threads and, and uh, you know, following my own rabbit holes to find the thing that I'm looking for. But yeah, so Rome is, Rome is taking that, but amping it up for, you know, notes that, that are private. Um, and uh, yeah, eventually we, we will be moving into the, the more public social uh, domain. Right. And so for improved and, and improved uh, searchability, ability to yeah yeah and I, I think the key thing is like there's a there's a difference between searching and browsing right searching you know ahead of time what you're actually looking for um, one of the things that people like about Rome is so every every page in Rome is both a place to write and a query over all of your other notes for other places where you use that term and so uh, and and there's there's two parts of that query there's the the linked references that you've formally connected to that page and there's unlinked references which are just you know places where you've used that term. So if I said something like collective intelligence, even if I hadn't formally linked it in the past, I can see all the notes where I've, I've written about collective intelligence. And so this, this means that it's easy for you to like roam or like wander through your old notes to find nuggets that you want to reuse or that you want to put into a new context. Um, and that's, that's sort of one of our, our core ideas is you should be able to get compound interest from your past writing. A lot of times People take a note or they, they save some, uh, some bookmark and they never revisit it again. And that really, yeah, de- defeats the purpose in, in many ways, right? The, the, the goal for us is can you get compound interest from your notes? Can, you, you know, can, can each thing that you write be a knowledge artifact that is giving you more and more value over time? By, and, and when you can start con- connecting ideas together, that's when you really start to see the, the power of the notes that you've taken in the past. So we've seen... People say that, you know, they write 10 times more in Rome than they did in Notion. And part of it is that they're able to see more continuous value from, from those thoughts that they're, they're capturing. Yeah, compound on your notes. I love that. And it's the same word. What tactically is, is my experience be within Rome than different than it would be on, say, Notion that would give me that sort of 10x, uh, you know, or, or compounded experience? Well, the, the, the first thing is that, so we... We encourage people to to take daily notes. So in terms of, you know, quick capture, you shouldn't have to think about, you know, does this relate to, you know, the books that I'm reading? Does this relate to the company that I'm running? Does this relate to, you know, hiring or like talent development or whatever, right? You just, if you have a thought, you put it on the note for that day and you reference through linking, um, which is functionally the same thing as tagging, um, all the topics that you think might be relevant and you, you sort of indent those underneath. And so your first sort of entry into this knowledge graph is just a, a quick capture of thoughts as you have them. So it, it's, it's, you don't need to think about the structure of your thoughts immediately as you're having them. You just sort of can brain dump and write. And so, yeah, the folks who, who tend to get into Rome sort of use it as like a, a daily journal where they're logging, you know, their tasks, the observations they're having, notes that they're having from meetings, um, just, you know, quotes from things that they're reading, that kind of stuff. Um, but then, you know, over time, you can both observe a, a sort of bottom-up emergence of the relationship between your thoughts, and you can start to more formally structure it. Um, because every every paragraph or every you know bullet point in Rome, um, you can choose whether you view it as an indented list or, or you can turn off the bullets and just view it like a document. Um, but every bullet point in Rome has a unique ID, and so it can be embedded in many different pages, and it's also going to appear in that query section for, you know. A number of um, and any any other references you make um, to other pages, it'll appear in the, in the you know query section for those pages. Talk about this concept uh, of Zettelkasten. Zettelkasten is a uh, a system that was developed by a German sociologist who sort of you know invented systems theory in in Germany, um, and he wrote over the course of his career he wrote seventy full pretty dense academic textbooks and uh, like over 400 like peer reviewed research papers. And he did this without any research team. You know, he, he said, you know, his research team was his Zettelkasten, which was uh, it's German for slip box. 
So he had, I think by the end of his career, he had like over 10,000 index cards. Each of those had a ID, you know, a unique reference, and he would link those IDs together. So um, his practice was he'd write three or four of these notes per day. So uh, it, very similar to actually the, the way I've seen you use Twitter, where as he was reading a book, he would write sort of a summary of the book in his own words. And, you know, he'd thread those ideas together. Uh, but then he'd also be able to to go back and, and index those ideas into other theories he was developing or the questions that he was interested in answering. So um, the 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 mark of a good knowledge management system is it's able to surprise you and it's able to be sort of like a, a good conversational partner because, you know, it's, it's able to take, it's reminding you of things that maybe you'd, you'd thought before, but you, you haven't thought of in a while uh, and they mean something different in the new context of, of what you're thinking about. So we think is, is the, you know, it, it's sort of like a GTD for knowledge management because, you know, you can't put a deadline on insight. Um, you don't know when you're going to have the breakthrough or when you're going to realize you were asking the wrong question or when you find some piece of evidence that invalidates the entire hypothesis you were working on before. You, you, can't, you can't plan for those things, but you can ha- have sort of deliberate practice and like consistent habits that allow you to get insight faster, right? And by the time, the, one of the reasons he was able to write so many papers and so many books is when it came time for him to you know, produce a, an artifact, right? Like a presentation, a, you know, class notes, um, like a lecture or, or these books or research papers, he wasn't ever starting with a blank page because he would, you know, grab one of those cards then find all the cards that were connected to it, pull them out, and then he could shuffle them around on the table, figure out what the right structure was. And then, you know, the paper, all he had to write was, was uh, the glue to tie the different ideas together. So by having that, you know, writing three or four index cards per day, he was able to eventually be really prolific um, and and produce a lot of you know presentable material to other folks. And he is is this Dave Allen to get things done, or who's this again? Oh, so this is this is Nicholas Lumen. Um, the two people who who followed that that I actually discovered it from were um, Robert Greene, who wrote the Forty Eight Laws of Power. Yeah, I think was one of the first people in in the English speaking world to adopt that system, and 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 then his protege um, Ryan Holiday. Uh, who you know wrote um, the obstacles away and you know trust me I'm lying those kind of things. Um, that's actually how I originally discovered the Zettelkasten was um, they had similarly you know boxes of index cards where you know as they were reading history they were you know making these discrete observations and then starting to connect those together so that when it came time for them to see some patterns across history um, they already had the raw material to to write those books that they wrote. So, yeah, Robert Persig who wrote. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and then his book Lila. He in the book Lila, which is much less uh, popular, the boat. Descri- yeah, he describes himself, you know, sort of rearranging note cards, but he also describes sort of the like state of mind you need to be in to be able to be open to insight in the first place. Yep, yep. which is which is pretty interesting. Yeah, the way I'm I'm a big fan of the idea that that you know we don't really have novel insight. The the insight sort of emerge through us right like like you know newton and and leibniz sort of are supposedly invented calculus almost at exactly the same time uh, in different ways so there there is a sense that there's a there's an adjacent possible um of like you know what idea is ready to come into the world and if you are you know if you're open to it if you're making a bunch of observations and connecting them and, and you sort of are viewing the world with a particular question in mind, then you're, you're more ready to, to give birth to those ideas. But um, if you don't have systems that allow you to, to draw new connections, um, it's hard for those ideas to sort of come into existence. So, yeah. And why is it Excel for text instead of uh, Google Docs? Well, so the thing that we think is really interesting about Excel is one, there's Excel is actually a really, you know, it's a, a, a purely functional reactive coding environment, right? It, it actually gives you a huge amount of power to, to see how data, you know, moves over time. We, we think it, it's, a, it's a really powerful tool and there's 750 million people who use it, but many of the people who use it just use it to draw tables, right? They're, they're, they're not using all the, the crazy functionality that's available for it. Um, and so with Rome, so we, we like the idea that, you know, a tool should be really easy for people to get started with. You know, it should be as simple as just writing lists out. Um, but as you have more pressing problems and you learn to use the tool more, you should be able to 
you should be able to get more power out of the tool. So we, we talk about sort of a low floor and a high ceiling. Um, like it should be easy to enter, but then as you like learn to use the tool more and develop more strategies for using it, the, the tool should have the capability for you to get more power out of it. Um, and so that that's something that Excel has, right? Where it's very easy for someone to get started with it. They don't need to learn about, you know, all, all the crazy functions that are available to it. And they don't need to be using pivot tables, you know, when they first start. Um, but as they learn to use the tool more, they can, you, know, you can eventually, you can run whole businesses on Excel, right? There's, there are many, many, many businesses that are just run on, on Excel tables. Um, and so that's kind of the, the model that we have is it should be easy to start with, but then you should basically be able to code in the tool itself and be able to do algorithms over your p- previous thoughts in order to generate new, new insight. Go, go deeper a little bit into, I'm curious where it's sort of the, how your sort of, you've, you've been looking at this for 12, 13 years. How is your sort of understanding of knowledge management or sort of collective intelligence uh, evolved in, in the time that you've, uh, where there's any sort of sharp changes in how you thought about it or how, how, how has it evolved along with the, how the field has evolved? So I've been really influenced by um, Michael Nielsen's work. Uh, he has a book called Reinventing Discovery where he talks about you know, what network science would look like. Um, so how could you, uh, and, and and a good example there is, you know, if you have 100 people in a room, you know, 100 scientists in a room, if, if you're doing everything sort of synchronously, you're limited um, in terms of how much intelligence you can get out of that whole community. Adding, you know, someone might end up spending, being sort of bored in, in one conversation, they're not necessarily getting matched to the right other people in the room to talk to. You know, there's uh, they might be slightly tired, right? There's 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 challenges to synchronous collaboration in in a knowledge space. But if you're limited to just the way that we structure text right now, where you know a hundred people are in just a discussion thread or like you know a Facebook Messenger chat, right? It's the same sort of problem of you can really easily get overloaded with with too much information. You have to figure out okay, like where 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 can I deliver the most value to you know, helping this group solve this problem. It's, it's hard to navigate that if the ideas don't have any sort of structure inside them. So my, my first startup was trying to solve this in like the political domain. Um, it was a, a startup called Localocracy and we were trying to make a online town commons the sort of vision was to like wikify government and to basically crowdsource ideas from people who were registered voters in the town so we could evolve, you know, solve some astroturfing problems um, and have them, you know, vote up proposals and and sort of vote up the pros and cons but there's there's a bunch of problems if you have there's often a low trust you know rivalrous dynamic in politics where you know people are incentivized if if you're joining a platform and you know the platform currently is mostly filled with people who disagree with you and they've raised some really good points you could just avoid using that or try to discredit the platform itself and and say like you know okay that i'm I'm not even going to address the the, the points that, that other people have made because I can, you know, I can just push the, the whole project aside. So at first, yeah, at first I was really starting with that, that collective, that collective intelligence thing. And we realized, you know, one, a tool should be useful first for the single player perspective, because if, if you need network effects to get started, it just, it takes a lot longer to, to, um, yeah, to, and especially if, if you think that the, the real, insight comes from the intersection of totally different domains. If we want to have, you know, molecular biologists collaborating with game theorists, collaborating with, you know, physicists, you shouldn't need all of the, the game theorists to be on a platform for it to be useful. So one of the ways that my thoughts have evolved is we sort of shifted, even though we, we have these sort of big visions for collective intelligence, we, we, we've shifted to just focusing on the single player tool first um, so that, you know, you don't need to worry about some critical mass in, in an idea space. So yeah, so that's that's the first place. You know, in the course of my research, I spent a while thinking about formal logic and predicate calculus, and like you know, figuring out how you sort of like map mathematically map out a logical argument and and make it so that you know, if I if I change the truth value of one thing, it'll it'll flow through the whole system. But I think that I we sort of realized actually like regular human language is incredibly powerful. So if we can just have you know pointers to to different ideas. And, and lean on, you know, the logic of, of human language, um, that actually is, is a lot more useful for a lot more people right off the bat. So we're still interested in, you know, figuring out how to, you know, there's, there's calculations in Rome, there's the ability to sort of have numbers propagate through, through a system, but 
um, we've been a lot less interested in in the sort of um, like Bayesian reasoning, like mathematical stuff, um, compared with just how do people define terms and and you know point to a definition uh, and you know like also just just take notes on on whatever and not worry about formal formal reasoning but uh but just drawing connections between ideas that they hadn't drawn connections to before have you gone deep on sort of linguistics or how language works i've i've been really influenced by douglas hofstetter um who wrote go to lesherbach and then his his most recent book um which is well summarized by the the, the lecture he gave at stanford um called analogy is the core of cognition and so he talks about uh, analogy is is pretty fundamental to human reasoning, and I think that that's one of the the places that that yeah I've been I've been most interested in terms of like how to model thought is like how do we model analogies and how do you how do you connect you know concrete examples to an analogous thing right uh, or analogous abstraction over those thoughts. Um, how do you envision Rome interfacing with sort of new platform shifts eventually, whether it's like VR, AR, you know? HCI stuff. Or. There's an exercise that I did a couple of years ago where the the prompt was to sort of imagine a day in your life, you know, 10 years from now. And like, what does that day look like? And, and for me, the, the day sort of started with like climbing up a mountain with like AR glasses and being able to see a full, like as I'm, as I'm hiking, being able to manipulate, you know, my thesis on the world and you know the structure of my business and and being able to actually like see in sort of three dimensions the the relationship between a bunch of things um so i think there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity in ar like i'm I'm a big fan of brett victor and and you know i think that if we're like limited to just screens and you know two-dimensional manipulation of ideas it's, it's harder for us to see the matrix and sort of the um you know uh yeah, the, the, the many ways that, that thoughts are connected or that the problems that we're working on are connected. Um, so I think being able to move in, into three dimensions or, and, and more is important. Uh, it's just, you know, it, it's, I've been really influenced by Douglas Engelbart, um, who's like most known as the inventor of the mouse, but in many ways is sort of the father of human computer interaction. Um, back in, you know, the, the 60s and 70s, everyone was trying to automate everything away, right? The, the focus was on artificial intelligence and figuring out how you could replace, you know, replace humans for, for operations. And, and he sort of had this idea that, that what you should be doing is giving humans more power and giving them more capability and, and augmenting intelligence instead of and focusing on IA instead of, uh, or intelligence augmentation as opposed to artificial intelligence. And so, um, but one of the ideas he talked about was bootstrapping of, you know, you should be building tools that augment your intelligence and then using those tools to solve harder problems. This is, this is also the, the sort of flywheel that, that folks talk about. Um, and so, you know, I think right now our, our goal is just let's build the best thing that we can with text and with two dimensional representations of, of, you know, knowledge relationships. Um, and then when AR is ready, when, you know, the, the, um, yeah, the landscape is there that it's easy for us to, to, you know, build on top of those platforms, then I think there's a lot more capability that, that will come out of that. I had this, this tweet last year, I said, people are often reading, curating, discussing the same books, articles, podcasts, and it's frustrating that this work doesn't seamlessly build on top of each other, that we don't collectively benefit. It's a structural problem. And then I said, annotations, transcriptions, wikis, we'll get there. Is this where you're hope, sort of hoping multiplayer evolves into? I, you know, I've been long fascinated with things like, you know, Rap Genius, who was on Wikipedia earlier. Like, yep. how are you sort of envisioning that? Yeah, I think there's, there's something that is, that's pretty magical when you find somebody else who is reading two obscure things in two different fields and they're connecting them the same way that you are, right? So that's, that's one of the things that where I, I've always been really interested in being able to pivot off of content to, you know, a social network of people who are interested in that content, pivoting off of that into other content that they're interested in as well. So one of the things that, that you know, we care about is how can you, uh, if, if you are, you know, annotating some book or, you know, uh, like taking notes on, on some YouTube video or on some podcast and you start to connect ideas in, you know, like, so first is being able to see the other people who are also interested in that, that same thought object. Um, whether it's, you know, a book or a podcast or a video, but it's more interesting when you can find other people who are connecting it to something else that's niche, 
because you're you're likely to be to have a, a pretty strong affinity for them. So being able to do that sort of form those ad hoc research communities. Um, and that, that doesn't just apply for folks at the, the sort of cutting edge of the field. That's, that's where we've, we've been sort of focused for now. Um, but it also is, you know, if, if you're a, a 12 year old learning calculus and you're, you know, but you're really interested in being able to launch bottle rockets, right? How do you find other 12 year olds that are at around the same uh, level of competency that you are and the same level of interest that you are and find the other material that has worked for them um, to help them learn solve the problem or, or move closer to the goal that, that you have. So yeah, we're, we're really interested in these kind of like ad hoc social research communities, um, very broadly defined. Totally. The way I sort of got into this construct of sort of global, I mean, one on a micro level, you're just being fascinated by these communities and wanted to participate in them and just sort of, you know, naturally using Twitter the, the way that I do. And then it's sort of, sort of a theoretical macro level, you know, I think non-zero by Robert Wright was the book that, that got me into it. Yep. it basically, yeah. Describes how, uh, you know, the story of history can be told by sort of an ever increasing sort of social complexity and intertwining of our fates. Yep. Um, and that, um, uh, you know, we become more and more, uh, interdependent, Yep. yep. Well, that's, that's, that's the thing that's cool about uh, Wikipedia and about open source is, is you have almost a rivalrous dynamic where someone is, someone wants to be the Wikipedian that, that, you know, like has made the last edit on that page. Right. And you can have some, some social competition where, where people are trying to like write the best Wikipedia article. Um, but the, the re- result of that sort of, rivalrous dynamic is something that's totally non-rivalrous, right? It's a, a you know, a, an object that then gets used by, by everybody else. Um, they can be fighting for sort of social status in a very limited domain, but then be able to create something that, that creates abundance for, for all the other people who are watching. And so, yeah, I'm curious though about like how you started using Twitter the way that you're using it. Like, cause there aren't, there aren't that many people who thread quite the way that I've seen you threading. Yeah, it's a good question. I, um, I, I use Twitter in a few different ways. I mean, one, one is I ask a lot of questions or sort of the Cunningham's law, like put yep, out yep. response, you'll get, you know, put every response might be wrong, might be simple, but, and someone will make it smarter. And also yep. just the, the, the feedback loop of, I, I'm, I'm now sort of not addicted to it, but I'm definitely on the buzz of like, oh, I like getting feedback on Twitter. Thus, I should get more interesting ideas. Thus, I should be more, you know, and that's yeah. a positive feedback loop for me. But in terms of threading, uh, part of it, you know, I saw other people doing it and then sort of I, realize that that would be a good way for me to sort of crystallize or codify these, these concepts because yep. yeah, as I, um, and put them in sort of natural orders, build on top of them. I'm not an engineer, but I've always been excited by the idea of like GitHub for, for thinking. Yep. 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 What actually started yep. to do is take some of them and put them into Anki. So I can yep. then, you know, remember that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. The, the GitHub for thinking Ward Cunningham, the guy behind Cunningham saw also the, the original author of the wiki, his latest project, which he's been working on now for, I think, over a decade is called Federated Wiki. And the thing that, that really attracted me to that was it, it had a model more like GitHub. And that's, that's sort of how we think about collaboration is, you know, every, every person had their own, you know, their own wiki, but, and it could be, it could be connected to certain networks. So if someone wants to make a change to one of your pages, they make a copy into their database and they make those changes. And they're basically issuing pull requests back to, to, you know, your wiki. Um, which you can accept or reject, right? And so I, I think that that model of every person, th- there can be gradual consensus um, or like, you know, gradual emergence of, of different consensus is a pretty powerful thing in GitHub where like each person, you know, has their own copy. They can make a branch. They can, you know, then ask to change back into um, into master on, on, on the source. And I, I think that's that's a much more powerful model for collective intelligence, you know, because you need to be able to just, like when you have a, a Google Doc that has a hundred people editing it, it's it's uh, pretty stressful for you to, you know, make major structural changes to that document because you know you don't know how people are going to feel about it. But making those structural changes is how you, you know, have the new idea or or see things in a new way. So you should be able to just you know make your own version where you where you make those changes instead of just copying and pasting and and losing all the connection to the original source, um, which is what people do right now is they'll just. You know, if they if they want to make a major revision, they'll just make a new document, and, and all of the connection to the source gets gets totally wiped away. So, yeah, GitHub for for knowledge is is another way of of thinking about what we're trying to do when we're yeah. I love that. I've always said I want something 
that has sort of the sort of searchability or sortability. And maybe you guys probably do this 10x better, but of Quora, of uh, combined with sort of the the real timeness and not even real timeness, but just know the f- the feedback and engagement of a Twitter and engagement loops because Quora is such good content. Yet I never check it. And Twitter's content is kind of okay or <laughs> hit or miss yeah. that I check yeah. it every second. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and Twitter Twitter has this graph structure. It's just um, it just doesn't expose any of the affordances in the UI, right? So if, if you're looking at someone's thread, there's no way for you to easily see that you know three of those threads have now been quote tweeted and put into a new context by somebody else or by the same person, right? So you're only able to sort of see these links pointing in one direction, um, which makes it you know, much harder for, for people to go from an individual thread that they're seeing to seeing like, okay, how is that, how's that thread been recontextualized or, or synthesized into a, a higher level idea? It's easy to drill down. It's harder to zoom back up. I'm curious, you, do, are there any debates in the space or just sort of different approaches to, to knowledge management that you, you're interested in or have opinions on once you know, in your thread, I saw that uh, Venkat said that you and uh, Tiago had a different uh, approach. Yeah. Um, so I like a lot of Tiago's ideas, Tiago Forte. One of the, the main ideas that I really like from him is this idea of intermediate packets, um, which I think just fits the Zettelkasten perfectly that, you know, if you have a big project, if you can break that project down into smaller concrete deliverables that could be potentially reused for other projects, um, it's easier for you to, you don't, you don't have, uh, as many sort of hard stopping points where the whole project has been, has been worthless. Right. Um, even if you decide that the blog post that you're writing isn't actually that good, if you've had these concrete deliverables of you know smaller observations that that you've you know written in your own words and, and you phrase nicely, those might be reused for for many different things in the future. So I, I like his idea of intermediate deliverables. But Tiago is has said like he said he says some ridiculous stuff like you know all of the early visionaries ideas were were fully realized by Microsoft Word, right? And uh, that you know. He sort of has this idea that the tools don't matter, that, you know, all that matters is the, the processes you're going through, which which sort of makes sense because he's a, a coach that, like, just teaches processes and, and wants to reach the largest audience. So, he, you know, he tries to be tool agnostic. But the thing about tools is that they um, they don't don't just map to the tasks you have, but they also have affordances for for thinking about new tasks that you might not have you might not have realized before. So, like, you know, you can climb a tree with with like climbing spurs and it might make it better for you to climb a tree. But if your goal is to pick some fruit, you know, having a ladder totally changes your relationship to that activity. Um, or like, you know, Excel at first you're just using it for calculations, but it also makes it easier for you to do sort of like as if comparisons or like hypothetical comparisons. And, and so you end up having a whole new set of workflows that can emerge because you of the capabilities of the tool. So, you know, obviously I believe in building tools because, you know, we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. And so I think that I'm a bit of a a technical determinist where I think that, you know, there, there are certain um, patterns of thought that get baked into the tools we have and that there's a problem with the way Evernote structures it or the way, you know, notion structures, um, you know, their, their notes where everything has to fit into one precise bucket and it's very hard to remix things and it's very hard to, you know, look at the intersection of two ideas and see all the notes you have about both of those ideas. And so I, I care a lot about processes that emerge for this, this new kind of tool where you're, you're thinking about knowledge graphs and you're thinking about remixing as sort of a, a first class object. Yeah. And, and that, that's sort of the big, you know, beefs that, that Tiago and I have are, you know, I think he's done a, there's, there's a few ways that you can augment intelligence. There's, um, you can have artifacts that, that change the, the way that you relate to your tasks. You can have methods and sort of practices like, um, like a spaced repetition habit, right? And, and then you can have language, like the language of intermediate packets, right? Um, or like the language of game B or something like this, like where the, the language sort of causes you to focus your attention on a different part of the problem, right? Lang- language is this incredibly powerful tool for taking, when you make a word for something that previously was only described in like a full sentence or a paragraph, you know, now that term can be composed to, to have sort of higher, higher order thoughts. And I, I think, I just think the tools actually matter really deeply, right? Like the tools that you use really do shape the way that you think in, in a lot of ways. And that I, I've done hundreds of, of user interviews and the level of stress that people have had with other note-taking systems, right? Where they're like, 
they're, they're stressed about the fact that they know they're going to lose the note. They know they're not going to be able to find it in the future. They don't know what to title the note or what notebook to put it in, right? I think that a lot of the there's a lot of incidental complexity when you try to use this strictly hierarchical knowledge management system, and it doesn't lend itself to seeing a sort of bottom-up emergence of, of how your thoughts are naturally connected. Uh, staying on tools, and tools are important. What else is in your sort of request for tools outside of Rome? Like if you were, you know, had a year-long hackathon for other people who uh, said they were going to work on things separate from Rome, uh, and obviously Rome's going to build a lot of this, uh, but yeah, there were tools that were going to move us forward in some way. W- what else comes to mind? I think I, I particularly care about like algorithms of thought, right? So when I think about like Mortimer Adler had this protocol for how to read a book where, you know, you would, you would systematically skim the book. You'd look at sort of the, the first and last chapter of the book to, to map out the argument. Like, and, and it was, it's sort of an algorithm of allowing individuals to, to parse, to parse a, a, a data structure that's basically formatted as a string into something more like a, like a graph. And I've, I've seen a bunch of other of these kinds of, you know, I, I, like Jordan Peterson has that, that site, which is, you know, self-authoring, which is basically just giving you a set of questions. The answers to your questions become inputs to the next set of questions. And it's a very simple, like, algorithm for, for helping people define what they want out of their life and, and set some vision. So we've been working on, like, basically building out a sort of third-party ecosystem for people to to make visualizations over, like, data structures within their notes. So you can sort of map over your thoughts and sort of ask a follow-up question for each of those or, you know, map over a, a, a set of um, a set of constraints and a set of options and figure out, like, you know, what what idea fits those best. So I, I'm very bullish on just general um, intelligence augmentation and, and ways for people to um, think about patterns of thought and then, like, you know, unique UIs for, for basically, yeah, running, running algorithms where you are the compiler, you know, where like, where, you know, each, each step in the algorithm is causing you to have a new idea and write something new or draw a new connection. Um, and I think there's just a ton of like, like the space is really untouched still. Right. And so there's a lot of UIs that haven't been invented. Like, you know, the closest I'm thinking about is like type form lets you put like logical conditions into, you know, if somebody answers the question this way, this is the next question to get them brought to but there still haven't been UIs developed uh, around, you know, taking the answers to some of those questions and putting those as inputs into into follow-up questions. So I'm pretty I'm pretty bullish on on that, um, and I think that's like not just useful for the the single player mode of of you know getting you in conversation with yourself to like to have more insight. But I think it, it matters a lot for if you're trying to to do any sort of collaborative knowledge work um, with a large group of people. So, but yeah, I mean, I also hope that there's just a lot more progress in, in AR and, you know, better, like better inputs for like audio to text and, and those kind of things. What do you think about uh, Andy Matushak and Michael Niels? You mentioned Michael Niels earlier about the work that they're doing now and where does that sort of intersect or differ from the Zed work you do? Yeah, we, I talk with Andy all the time. Um, I'm actually, I've got a conversation with Andy later today. The work they're doing on tools for thought, right. Is, there's not a lot of people in that space like they're and they're doing really, really good work. Um, and so I've gotten a lot of ideas from Andy. Um, I've been happy to see some ideas from Rome uh, incorporated into, you know, like like contextual backlinks um, is is a thing that you can see in in his public notes. You know, he, he baked that into his um, his personal knowledge management software. Um, so I, I hope that the ideas are it seems like the ideas are going in both directions. His ideas around programmable attention of basically saying that, you know, space repetition, which, which, you know, they've, they've popularized with, with quantum country and, um, uh, with Michael's stuff on Anki is actually a, um, you know, it's about, it's about managing your attention allocation and it's not just useful for memorization. It's useful for, you know, rephrasing an idea over time or prompting yourself with some daily question and then answering it in a different way each day. And so we've, a lot of our ideas for the next year, the things on our roadmap actually relate to some problems that Andy has articulated really well. And, and I think he's, he's coined some terms um, that have been really useful for us, like programmable attention. And, and you mentioned Ravelrous before, and we mentioned Game B. Talk, talk about what you think are the biggest contributions of, of Game B. I guess now we're moving more, more higher level, but w- where do you see that going or what's most interesting about, about what, what they've got sort of going on there? Yeah, I mean, so... One of the things that I've been trying to figure out, like 
it, when we eventually get to a place where people are able to build knowledge on top of other people's knowledge really easily, right? In, instead of like copy pasting, right? They're able to just directly embed content from other people. Um, I've been thinking about how do you both uh, incentivize people for building these like atomic units that get reused, like, and, um, uh, you know, yeah, like what, what, are, what do the incentive structures look like for, um, for contributing to the commons? Um, and how do you also basically allow people to, to make a living by doing knowledge work and, and, uh, and creating really useful, elegant explanations of, of complex ideas or like ways of, of um, teaching people skills and those kinds of things. So the thing that I've been really interested in in game B is the problem of incentive design and the, the, the problem of value capture versus value creation. Because I think there's just still a bunch of unanswered questions that, that are still unanswered for us uh, in terms of, you know, how you do incentive structures when you're trying to create uh, an information commons and, you know, basically, yeah, like how do you, how do you both do incentives? How do you do incentive structures and, and how do you also make sure that people are able to make a living who are creating a lot of value, like people are able to support themselves. And so there's mostly good questions in that field. I haven't yet seen great answers. Um, but I've also, I've liked the phrasing because originally I'd, I'd been interested in this this problem of um, of the commons coming from Yokai Bankler's work, um, where he was you know he had he had some great papers in like the early two thousands about um, information commons and copyright and you know yeah um, and it, it's nice to see that in a more in a less academic language and uh, and and getting more popular um, across more people so yeah. That's that's kind of that's how I've been thinking about Game B is it's it's about getting people to ask the right questions um, yeah. uh, and and thinking about institution design too. But but yeah, yeah. The intersection between you know, value creation and value capture is really interesting in the sense of if we want people to have you know going back to Michael Nielsen if we want people to have you know uh, make more sort of breakthroughs in you know science you know that will then lead to all this value, you know, creation or in capture by other people who they don't see, you know, the, Eric Weinstein always says they, how come, you know, physicists exactly. see the, you know, the, the value that was created from, you know, uh, people who leveraged it to create other things. H- how do we thus incentivize people to, to do that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I was, I was actually just about to bring up Eric Weinstein because, you know, his, his sort of thesis that like all of the progress of the 20th century was, was riding on the back of physics. Um, but, you know, physics doesn't like, the only way you can get a job in physics right now, I mean, some folks end up going into, into hedge funds and, um, you know, being quants, but, uh, but there's, there's not a great, um, there's not a great way for any physicist to capture any of the value that they're creating. Um, uh, and so, yeah, our, our society doesn't like allocate nearly enough resources into fundamental research and, and, and even the like clear articulation of that fundamental research, right? Like writing a really great, you know, uh, book that popularizes physics, like it's it's nothing compared to the value that's actually being created by those by those concepts. Uh, uh, Glenn Well has sort of the idea of basically redefining private property, but then we get into the realm of you know, I don't know, that is just hard to think about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the the problem that we've been interested in thinking about is like how does a how does a small group like you know our communal house make decisions, right? How do you figure out how to do these problems of you know, attention allocation and gradual consensus. Like, how, how do you do these amongst small groups of people where there's already high trust? Um, and can we do them in ways that, like, that that can scale? Um, but it's it's still a, like, it's a big, there's a lot of design problems around, you know, attention allocation and, and uh, like, figuring out what, what you bubble up to somebody at what level of granularity and, and how can they, like, keep zooming in um, and, yeah have those contributions, you know, especially if there's a logical structure to what's going on, like have something that is edit, zoomed in at a very fine level. If you disprove a certain axiom, have that still like bubble up all the way up the chain so that, you know, you can, when you're reading a, a paper, if the paper, you know, cites something that failed to replicate, like get sort of a warning as you're reading the paper um, that like, hey, the, the whole premise of this, this idea might have been invalidated. Like you should, you should check the work. Yeah. Totally. Nearing the, uh, the end here, is there anything we didn't get to cover that you think uh, might be interesting for our audience to know or perhaps uh, plug uh, anything else uh, about Rome in terms of what's, what's, what's to come? So right now we're, we're in a place where 
a lot of people's calendars have changed a lot, right? They're, they're, they're not going to be out socializing as much, you know, there were at least for, you know, the coming months, we're going to be in, in a little bit more of a quarantine or social distancing space. And I think that, um, the, there's a ton of opportunity there, right? You know, Newton invented calculus, Shakespeare wrote King Lear while they were in quarantine. And it's a great time for deep work. And it's a great time for trying to clearly articulate like what you believe, um, like what theses you think about the world and what questions are really interesting to you. And so, um, I've, I've been, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that some really cool things could come out of this time. And obviously we think that Rome is, is the best tool people can have for, you know, generating insight for, for making progress on the hard problems that, that they've not been able to make progress on before. Um, so I'd highly recommend people read Sanka Aaron's book, uh, how to take smart notes, which I, I think introduces the, the idea of, of Zettelkasten and the, the practices around, you know, when you, when you read a book, like, you know, copying and pasting or directly, you know, directly quoting it isn't nearly as useful as, as articulating it in your own words. Um, and then what's most important is after you've articulated it in your own words, figuring out how that idea connects to other things that you're thinking. So um, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful about, you know, this time is, I, I think it's, it's, it's a great time for Rome users. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I hope that folks who are um, listening to your podcast, check it out. I, I would also say if I was just going to, to make a quick plug. So Rome is, Rome is a power tool, right? Um, and it, we have not, we're still in our very, you know, earliest stages, our first couple of years, we were actually just funded by the um, AI safety and sort of existential risk research community where we were, we were getting paid to develop the tool for, for a very small group of people. Um, uh, we still haven't mastered onboarding. So it's, you know, we're, we're leaning on, there's a, a huge community of people who've been making YouTube videos. Um, and there are some paid courses out there for how to learn to use Rome really effectively. So if I was just, you know, pitching, pitching the tool, I would say, look at the community, like get on, get on Twitter and start, you know, at least using Twitter as a Zettelkasten. But, uh, um, but if you're, you know, look at the, the Rome cult hashtag and if you're interested in Rome, like take a look, make sure you search YouTube and, and, um, and search Twitter and, and take a look at some of these courses. I love that. Uh, that's a perfect place to wrap. Uh, my guest today has been Connor O'Reilly-Tolman of Rome Research. Uh, Connor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Eric. I appreciate it. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.